So we're gonna, I'm going to look at a little bit in uh, Corinthians because Paul talks um, quite a bit about money there, but he talks to um, the Corinthian church and he, he says there's this other group of people who are really poor called the Macedonians who are kind of putting them to shame a little bit. So we're going to come to that in a little bit. But I just want to say a few things. There's a few misconceptions about, I think, when it comes to money. There's this question, what should I do with my money? I wanted to say, buy me a Porsche. Or just donate it to Dangawa Charity. That would be brilliant. But actually, God has a lot to say about what we're to do with our finances, how we're to handle them, how we're to use them. And particularly, I want to look at giving a little bit. And I want to get across that God is not anti-rich. God is not anti you having some wealth, having money. It's more a case of what you do with that money. So often in the church, we have two extremes. We either have this poverty complex where... We think, oh, to be a Christian, I've got to be a poor church mouse all the time. Or the other extreme is we have these health, wealth, prosperity people. You'll see them on the God channel, etc., that say, you donate $52 and you'll become a rich man and win the lottery. We either have a poverty complex or we have God wants to make us the richest people on earth. Neither are true. And what I want to kind of navigate today is that actually it's not that he's anti-rich or he's anti-poor. That actually what God is concerned with is when it comes to money, he knows how much of a pull that is. He knows how much of a vice that is for us. And he's more concerned with our hearts. You know, Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. Why? Not because he's rich, but because of the pull and allure of money. Because in that instance, the person he's talking to, money has such a hold on him that it would be easier for a camel. A camel, it's, it's, not, it's not a metaphor, he means a camel through the eye of a needle, that he's being literal. It would be easier. That's how much of a pull money has upon our hearts. And I'm not going to tell you what you should spend your money on this morning. I'm not going to say you should give X or do Y. But rather we talk about, obviously the Bible talks about that we're to give a proportionally in regards to our income. And I want to say, well, what we do with the rest of that, you know, say the 90%, 80%, 70%, 60%, whatever. Whatever money, disposable income you have, what you do with that, as long as it's not sinful, is up to you. Often we have this kind of police or actually you can't do that because it's indulgent. Or you can't go out for a nice meal there. Or you can't do this or you can't do that. No, actually what we do with our money, as long as we're not, you know, gambling or we're investing in, you know weapons for terrorist organizations or x or y whatever it is it it doesn't really matter you know but what matters is what we're using uh is that actually we feel that it's good it's it's fitting it's helpful and actually looking at how we can use all of what we have our money our resources to advance the greatest cause which isn't our bellies, isn't our stomachs, isn't experiences or moments, but it's the proclamation of the gospel. It's seeing lives completely changed. Now, forgive me, I might be slightly offbeat here, but I think the most important thing for most people in this world is money. You know, just look at pop culture. I was going to sing these for you so that you would recognize them, but actually it would do completely the opposite. But here's a few few things that you just see. Some of these are old, but some of them aren't. Uh, some of the titles from some kind of popular songs. Money Changes Everything. It's All About the Money. Bit of Kanye West and Gold Digger. Uh, money by Pink Floyd, which says, Get a good job with good pay and you're okay. Uh, money Talks by ACDC. Everyone likes a bit of ACDC. It says, Come on, come on, love me for the money. Works for them, I suppose. Uh, billionaire. And then a wealth of hip-hop songs. I mean, I'm not anti-hip-hop. It's not my thing, really. Uh, just as classical music isn't really either. But 
you know, near enough, a lot of the kind of hip-hop songs and hip-hop culture, R&B culture, is a lot about money, making money. And then you've got kind of adverts. Near enough, every advert on TV, which is basically saying, you want me, but you don't have the money to afford me. <laughs> so you need to go to Wonga and get a, a payday loan to be able to afford to do this, etc., etc. I'm, I'm glad that they're clamping down on all those things. That's great, isn't it? But the fact that those things exist in the first place tells you how much of a hold money has upon our society. The fact that there are uh, payday loan sharks, the fact that Wonga existed, the fact that all these companies exist, credit cards do, tells us that money has a massive hold upon our society. You only have to look at the debt that the world is, is in. It's staggering. Even our own country, which is supposedly one of the wealthiest nations on earth, has trillions and trillions and trillions of pounds of debt. Why? Because we're not wise with our money. You know, it's not just the UK, is it? I, I mean, find me a country in the world that isn't in debt. I don't know if there is one, actually. There may be. Tell me afterwards. I'm not sure that there will be. But it seems to me that money is what we think makes the world go round. And without it, we think we're stuffed. Therefore, we kind of put two and two together and go, well, it must be the most important thing. Making money, using money, keeping money. And God says an awful lot about it. One of my favorite verses in Ecclesiastes, so in the Old Testament, says, whoever loves money never has enough. Spot on, isn't it? Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And then he has his usual refrain, this too is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. <laughs> Jesus in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, you can't live for money and wealth at the same time as living for God. It's impossible. Jesus says so. And the call from God here is, is the same call that it was last week. And I wasn't here last week, but I know that Carl preached on loving your enemies. So I know for a fact he would have said, this is countercultural stuff. This is revolutionary. This is what most people do not do, love your enemies. The same is true with money. The way we're to approach money is in a countercultural way. The world is driven by it. The world revolves around it. The people of God should therefore demonstrate that it doesn't have that hold. The people of God should demonstrate that they live differently. And you know how we do that? By giving it away. That's what it means to, to not have money, it's to give it away. That's how we demonstrate countercultural living is, actually this doesn't have a hold on me, it's not mine anyway, so I'll give it away. It's a, a base on tithing at least, is based on what we read in the Old Testament where the people of God would tithe. Some commentators think as much as 21% of their income. Now, aren't you glad you haven't heard that one before? 21%? I thought it was 10%. Um, some speculate there's 21, 22% that perhaps they had different tithes that all added up in a total. Um, but a lot of people seem to go that it was a 10% thing. And what that would do was they would give 10% back to God. Um, and that would pay for the Levites and the priests and their expenses. and Just making sure that actually that relationship carried on for the costs involved in all those things that were taking place. And the way I like to think of that, because sometimes we think, oh, flipping out 10%, that seems like quite steep. That seems like quite a lot. And it's not, you know, it's not, um, it's not really, if you think about it, when you think that 100% of it is God's. And that he's asking for 10% of it back. And yet he leaves you with 90% of what's his. 
That's a helpful way of thinking about it, isn't it? Say, well, actually, I get to keep 90% of what God gives to me, as opposed to I have to give back 10%. So the New Testament doesn't mention a percentage, but maybe the carryover from the Old Testament is still quite helpful. But the New Testament does talk about something called proportionate giving. It talks about whatever your income is, you give in proportion to that, whether it's 10%, 15%, 8%. I, I don't think Paul or the others are particularly bothered about a percentage. I'm not sure they're particularly bothered about whether you've got the right number of zeros or you're 10p short on that 10% each month. But rather, the concern is with our hearts. The concern is, what does it look like in here? Do we give our second best to God? Or are we giving the first fruits? Are we giving our best to him? Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The other good news of that verse is there's no moths in heaven. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Isn't that the best news, good news? And then the next verse here. Each of you should give what you have decided to in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I am not going to stand here this morning and say, if you are not giving, I am going to make you. I'm not going to walk you over here and say, this is the pot, put your money in. Because that would be sinful. That would be wrong. We are to give joyfully. You know, if someone's forcing you to give, it takes the joy out of it, doesn't it? We're to give freely. That's what the Bible talks about. But here is a question for you to consider. Is it sinful or wrong to not give back to God? The answer is yes. Actually, it is yes. And it, it feels slightly awkward for me to say that and stand up at the front. But I can't not say it. Because that's what it says in scripture. That's what God says. Is it wrong, is it sinful to not give back to him, to not honour him, to not bless him, to not give him the first fruits? Yes. It is wrong. Where that goes to is on you. Whether that's the local church, whether that's charities. We're not going to police it. We're not going to have this heavy hand that says, are you giving here or are you giving there? That's between you and God. But what we need to look at is what does money, how, how is it that we can, our hearts can be right before God when concerning money? If you've got a Bible, I want you to just flick to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 because this is a story. Um, it's an amazing story that Paul tells as he's writing to a church that is at best chaotic um, and at best messed up in its priorities. Uh, the church in Corinth were a little all over the place. And this is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm just going to read the first 15 verses for you because Paul tells a bit of a story. He, he gives an example of another group of Christians, the Macedonians. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this now, as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he, uh, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in and out of love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. It's interesting, isn't it? Giving is an act of grace. 
We all, we all know to, we're to love our enemies is part of the Christian walk. But did you know that giving is too? Being generous is too? It's, like a, it's, it's in that list there. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so you'd be readiness and desire and it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. You see it in Acts, don't you? We went through Acts earlier uh, last year, the, the, the believers came together and they all gave. And what did that mean? It meant that nobody was short. It meant that those that were richer gave, those that were poorer gave, and everybody had enough. And we read it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want to give you a little bit of background here. Is that the, the church in Corinth have said that they are going to help um, the church in Jerusalem. They've not met these people, but they've kind of promised, yes, we will send relief. Church in Jerusalem are poor, they're struggling, they need help. Corinth have said they'd do it, but they've been a little bit slow in getting there. They've made promises, but they're yet to fulfill. And so Paul brings up these Macedonians of what it looks like to spend your money wisely, what it looks like to give, what it looks like to give back to God. And I want to just show you that they are not likely candidates. When I was reading that, I don't know if you picked up a couple of things that I said about them. Verse 2 says that the Macedonians have had a severe test of affliction. You know, it might be that this group of people are being persecuted. It might be that they're having a really difficult time from the local authorities. We don't know. He doesn't say. But they've got other things going on. They've got things that are distracting their minds. Stuff to think about. And then we're told that the Macedonians, and these are the ones that have given generously to the church in Jerusalem. This is the description of them. They have extreme poverty. Is that not remarkable? That a church that has extreme poverty is the one that's giving so generously. If anything, you would say that their extreme poverty should rule them out from giving, wouldn't you? That they're the ones that need the money more than even the church in Jerusalem. They're being afflicted, they're being attacked, they're in poverty, yet they're the ones that are helping out. And it got me thinking, well, well why? why? Why of all the people? And it can only be one thing as you read through this section, 1 to 5. This is verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And then verse 5 says, And this was not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and they by the will of God to us. Paul makes it really clear that grace, God's favor, his unmerited love for them, has been poured out upon these guys in Macedonia. And that is the only thing that accounts for their generosity. It's not that they were born generous people. It's that God has caused them to be generous. 
It says they give themselves to the Lord only because God's given themselves to them. And I heard a bit of a quote that kind of sums up what happens here in the hearts of the Macedonians and what I believe can happen to us too. You know, if we're struggling with money, if money has a hold on us, this can happen. That grace comes down, joy rises up, and generosity flows out. That should be the mark of every church. That as grace comes down, as we're thankful for the free gift that we've been given, the new life that we've given, that joy rises up within our souls, and as a result, we're generous with all that we have, whether it's time, money, resources. But you have to get the sequence right. If you start messing with the sequence, it messes with you. For example, if God's free gift doesn't come first, then I start taking pride in the fact that I'm really generous. I start taking pride in the fact that, look at me, look how much I can give. I can give great things. I don't do them in secret anymore. But if we remember that God is gracious to us, that God is kind to us, then we give in the same way. It's a little bit, um, I remember being in Ireland a number of years ago (laughs) and going to this church, which I wouldn't have ordinarily gone to, but I won't tell you which one it is. And um, it's a little, there's this guy there who's the main pastor and um, they built this amazing building that I think taken a lot of money to do and it was like a, a youth building. But the youth building had been named after him. So it wasn't like, you know, the Jesus Christ youth building or the praise God for his glory. It was, it's like it being, you know, if we, when, we, when we have a building of our own, it's like if we had a youth center calling it the Dangawa Center of Excellence, which I'm open to. <laughs> but it's a little bit egotistical. And that's what happens if we lose the fact that God's been gracious to us first. If we forget that it's only in God's kindness that we're then kind. It's only in God's generosity that we then show generosity to others. The thing that astonishes me most about this, though, in these five verses, is that in reading it, on the plain reading of the text, it seems to me that these Macedonians flourish. It seems that giving flourishes where there is less. Not where there is a great abundance, but where there is less. It seems like a mad thing to say, doesn't it? Where they have nothing, giving flourishes. Yet one to five seems, how else does that... Those verses make sense. They don't make any sense otherwise. And time and again, I was just reading these verses and I was banging my head against a brick wall yesterday. Because time and again, I would just be tearing up. And I don't mean that in a kind of, you know, I was wailing. But as I read those verses, it moved me that a people that are so broken, a people that have absolutely nothing, give beyond their means to help out others, are not concerned with themselves but concerned with other people. You know, I, and it just shamed me. I've never known poverty. I've never really known affliction compared to Christians across the globe. I'm not being persecuted for my faith, particularly in the UK at the moment. Yet the way I respond financially is embarrassing. That's what I, that's, that's what I get when I read those five verses. It's embarrassing. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I look at their example and I'm just blown away. That actually, if I'm suffering, if I'm being afflicted, it seems like the perfect excuse not to give. Yet for these guys, it was an excuse too. Why? Because money hadn't held them. Money wasn't their boss. Money wasn't their king. 
we've got to realise that one, we're not in poverty, and two, if these guys were generous, then how much more so should we be? I mean, first world problems is a real thing, isn't it? And we have to catch ourselves going, it's okay, it's only a first world problem. Oh no, my Sky Plus player didn't record my favourite TV show and I've not got it on catch-up. It's not a disaster. <laughs> it's okay. My, um, my family have been having, over in Lancashire, have been having to drink bottled water for the last four weeks because there was this bug in the United Utilities stuff over in Lancashire. And the amount of people that are complaining, say, I'm going to take them to court. I'm going to get my... For goodness sake, you have access to bottled water. Stop with your first world problems. <laughs> I've recently been over in, as I said, Bible teaching over in Montenegro and Croatia. And Croatia is an EU country and Montenegro wants to be an EU country. And so the Croatians are a little bit kind of frosty on the border. You know, they want to make sure, and especially with, I suppose, the crisis that's going on around the world, wanting to make sure that the right people are getting in. So we were going on a day trip to Dubrovnik in a coach with no AC, etc., etc. Six hours to get through that border, which basically meant we had about an hour and a half in Dubrovnik, which is, I mean, there's not much point, really. We might as well have turned around. But I tell you, I was on a coach full of 40 Christians, but you wouldn't have known it. <laughs> and there's probably someone they're going to watch this. Um, but in kindness, I'm going to say to them that we've just got to cheer up. It was a first world problem. So what if we don't make it to Dubrovnik? We have to sometimes realize, actually, what we have. We don't have an excuse to be grumpy. We have these first world problems. and We've got to divorce that, actually, from what we're supposed to do with our money. The people who we would least expect to be the givers are in this scenario. The people that we would expect to receive the money are the ones that are giving. I mean, when asked to kind of give to anything, whether it's the church or otherwise, do we freeze? Do we think, well, I'm due to buy this new TV, so it'll mean a month without the new TV with the curves on it. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. Or it'll mean, oh, I won't have my computer, or I won't have my family holiday this year because I've got to give to something that's more worthwhile. I want to say this, that people will always be more important than stuff. We've got to get that into our heads, haven't we? Because our culture says stuff is more important. People are always more important than the stuff that we have. should always be that way around. And the church, of all things, should be the leading light in that people are more important than stuff. That's why I'm, I'm getting increasingly frustrated by this crisis in Calais. Not because... Uh, they're there. I think, you know, people call them migrants. Let's just call them people. They're people. <laughs> Let's not label them as migrants. They're people who are without hope and need the love of Jesus Christ, don't they? But I'm getting increasingly frustrated that a lot of charities and a lot of people just don't seem to be willing to do anything. There's something on our doorstep and we're just, we're not willing. Because for most of us, stuff is more important than people. But actually, the countercultural way of living says that people are more important. I want you to just understand the depths of these Macedonians in their giving here. Um, because this is what it says. In a test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul says extreme poverty. And if you actually look into the Greek of what those two words mean together, it means rock bottom destitution. That's what Paul says of the Macedonians. It's not as if they were just poor. They were rock bottom. They literally have nothing. 
And it's almost as if the Macedonians look at their bank balance, look at their future outgoings, go, well, okay, I've got this bill coming up, I've got this bill coming up. They have a look at those two things and then completely disregard them. That's the picture I get, going, well, we've got all these things to pay, but you know what, this is a more worthwhile cause than whether my bill is paid or not. They give, and it's costly for them to do so. As Paul says, they gave beyond their means. And he even says in the verse afterwards that they pleaded. It's as if Paul was there going, right, okay, and I'll just tell you about these. You know, he's sharing the gospel, and you can see the Macedonians going, Paul, please, please, can you pass the offering plate round? Please, can you let us help? We really want to serve these guys. We really want to help these guys in Jerusalem. It wasn't a forced thing. <laughs> They were desperate to give. How foreign is that for us? We're so desperate to get, but they're desperate to give because people are more important than stuff to them. And it just, back to Calais, it just made me think, it's like the people in the jungle pleading to give to others. They have nothing. They've come all that way and they're saying, please let us give to these poor people in the UK. Please let us help them financially. It's an amazing picture, an amazing picture of actually, this is what it looks like for money to not have a hold on your life. That's who's raised up in front of us. And the only reason that happens is because something greater has captured their heart. It's not about, oh, look at me, look how much I've given, etc. It's something greater than money has captured the Macedonian's heart. Something is more important to them. You know, and I can never get by, you know, as Christians, we should be the least tight people that there are. You know, squabbling over change and whatever. Forget about it. We should be the most generous. You know, if our God is as great as he is, we should be giving back to him. And if money doesn't have a hold on us, then we should be giving back to him. But often it's the other way around, isn't it? Money is too great and our God is too small. The allure of money gives us safety, security. We think it gives us hope. We think it gives us a future. People of my generation, and I'm guilty of this, is for some reason I think if I get on the property ladder, my life will be made. It's not true, is it? I think, well, I'm renting, I'm renting, okay, I'm still renting. And somehow I think, well, if I can only just get the deposit together and we can buy, our life will be settled. It's a lie of the enemy. It's not going to bring us security or satisfaction at all. And I've got to learn that as much as the next guy. But the allure of money is supposedly safety, security. But for the Macedonians, security and safety have been replaced in Jesus Christ. Even if quantitatively, I've had a battle trying to say that word. Believe me, I was practicing yesterday in front of the mirror. Try it. <laughs> it's not easy. Um, even if what they had what didn't amount to much financially... You know, say well, they, all they could give was £10. Well, £10 to them was an awful lot of money. And that's what mattered. It didn't matter whether it was £10,000 or £10. What mattered was the heart and the attitude in which it was given. And actually, they demonstrate to us that greed can be broken, don't they? This is verse 9. They wanted Christ more. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus, though, he was the richest person ever in one sense. He's the king of heaven, the creator of the universe. 
became poor for our sake. So much of our world is geared around being wealthy and being rich, yet the one who was the richest became poor. It's countercultural, isn't it? For our sake, he became humanity. And he wasn't just, you know, if Jesus, when Jesus came to earth, he deserved to be the greatest king of all time, didn't he? He deserved to have people wafting things at him and feeding him grapes and huge entourages following him. But instead he was born to a teenage girl. He had a stepdad. He was a carpenter's son. He lived in Nazareth, the scummiest place in the whole of the region. He was poor. And he did that for you and I. I mean, Isaiah prophesied this. He had no form or majesty. He's the greatest king ever that we should look at him. Basically, he could walk past you in the street and you wouldn't go, oh, good looking chap, that. You wouldn't get beard envy. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And you know what this passage says? He became poor so that we might become rich. Not so that we have wealth. Not so that we're rich in this life, but that we're rich eternally. That we're given all that he gave up. We're given everlasting life. It's amazing, really, that we can have, be in that place where moth and rust don't destroy. It's not about material gain. It's about the gain of having Jesus in our life. That he would be prepared to become poor so that we could gain him. So that he is more important than the money that we have. And this is why those teachers on the God channel, those teachers on the other channels, on you, you know, if you went on your skybox or your, and you flicked through, is baloney. That's why we should give it a massive, massive wide berth. Because they stand at the front and say, if you just give $52, if you make a $52 pledge, then God will bless you. And then they put up people saying, oh, well, I gave my last $52, and then I won the lottery. It's like, oh, my goodness. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what God teaches. Our wealth is in Christ. You know, there was one guy. <laughs> it's so funny. And you've got the like, you know, you've got the moody keyboard background music. And he's saying, just give $52. And if you do, you get a complimentary pack of holy water. And it's this like it's like this little sachet, and it's like you put the whole, you get the holy water out every day and you put it on your flannel and you cover your face, and in just two weeks you'll be a new man or woman. And then you have lots of people phoning up saying, Oh, it was brilliant, I've been waiting my whole life and Oh, goodness me. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. And it's especially not good news because it preys on the poor. It preys on the weak. It preys on those that don't know any better. It's incredibly damaging, actually. And actually, our great, our wealth from these verses is found in knowing and loving Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus takes a bullet for us, not so that we can become materially wealthy. That's not what he does it for. He does it so that we can have a new life. He does it so that we can live with him forever. And it's just a practical, a couple of practical things just to think about in terms of what should I do with my money? Because you might be thinking, oh, this is quite heavy. Or you've basically just told us to be generous, which you would get anyway in your kind of reading of the Bible, one would hope, with our time and our energy. But there's just a couple of practical things that will hopefully just bring a bit of kind of 
comfort to our hearts as well, because you're thinking, oh man, I've got to go home and sell my house. I've got to sell my car. Remember, we don't have a poverty mentality. Okay, so we don't need to do that. Unless the Lord kind of stirs you (laughs) and is stirring you right now, and that's a completely different kettle of fish. But verse 12 of chapter 8 says this, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, Paul says, give in proportion to what you have. Don't have envy for those who have a lot of money and can give more. Just give in proportion to what you have. That's what he says is the important thing. Whether it's £10, £100, £1,000. You know, what's, for someone who is poor, £100 is a generous gift, isn't it? But for someone who earns 5k a month, £100 is not. We give in proportion with what we have. You know, and God actually doesn't ask us to give more than we have. It's encouraged, but he doesn't ask us to. He doesn't say, you all must give me 99% of everything. Even though it's his. I want you to understand that it's all his. Everything is his. But he doesn't ask that of us. He just encourages it. As he does with the Macedonians. And the other thing I want to say is, because if you're thinking, well, he's been a bit heavy and he's making me give. It's completely voluntary. I'm not going to go from this place and go, oh, that person's giving and this person. I don't want to know. It's between you and God. Just as my giving is between me and God. But it's completely voluntary. It's not forced. The church is not a club that you pay an entrance fee for. If I give somehow, I secure eternal life or somehow I'm in. It's not a club. You know, churches should not be rich. What I mean by that is, they should not have tons and tons and tons of money in their bank account. Why? Because they should be giving it away. A part of me thinks the same with Christians. We should be giving it away. What's the use in having £400,000 sat in our bank account when there are people that are needing money or there are things going on in our life? We're going to die anyway. Oh, but my children will need it. But then when the children die, they have £400,000 sat in their bank account, etc., etc. Churches specifically shouldn't have tons and tons of money just sat there. Because we should be giving it away, giving it to those that need it. And actually, there's a faith element too, isn't there? Giving beyond our means. Not just as individuals, but I think as a church. To say, actually, we're going to give away more than we're scheduled to bring in this year. That our faith is tested a little bit. That we expect God to meet the needs that we're trying to reach in our town and in our nation. You know, we we so often divorce all the different things in our life, don't we, in our Christian walk. But if we start to join all the dots together that we're to be kind because God showed kindness to us. We're to be good because God's been good to us. We're to show grace because God's been gracious to us. We're to be generous because God's been generous to us. All too often, we pick and choose which ones we want. But if we start to join the dots a little bit, I think we're effective as a church because we've started to grasp what the gospel is. There's a little bit of a myth as well, isn't there, when it comes to money that says, by giving to God, we will receive more. Have you heard that one? People encourage you to give and say, if you give, God will bless you. God will give you more back. You heard that? I think it's a bit of a myth, really. I don't think it's true in the sense that it's pointed out in front of us. There is this verse, 9.6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, that appears to contradict exactly what I just said, doesn't it? 
If you sow a little, well, don't be surprised when you get a little back. If you give a lot, don't be surprised when you give or you get a lot back. That's what the Bible says. So it must be true. But, and there is a massive but, that these verses are in the context of, uh, there's verses that surround and there's verses that are coming up that I'm going to read in a middle, in a minute, sorry, that speak about how actually, yes, if we give more, we will receive more back. But what do we do with that money we receive back? That's where Paul instructs. That's where it's different. Paul doesn't say, if you give, God will bless you so that you can hoard it. Paul says, if you give, God will bless you so you can give again. They miss that last bit off, don't they? They miss that last bit off. And that's integral to this whole argument, actually. It's not to hoard, but it's so we can give more. I mean, what if we don't have the money to pay our bills? Well, what if I'm going to go short this month? We've got to be a faith-filled people. I believe that if God stirs our hearts to give to something, then he will not fail to meet that need. You know, I can testify that over the last year of going from full-time employment to, well, zero employment, and then practically zero employment with the gardening, so that God has met our needs at every step. And even, even to the house that we're now living in, I've got to have these massive operations on my knees next year where I'm going to be like unable to walk for three months at a time. I've got a bungalow. That's amazing. And it's got a disabled ramp. I think that's amazing. I can just get pushed in, pushed out. But when we came to the place, I was like, oh, I don't want to live in a bungalow. What have we got this old person ramp for at the front? We're not old people. We don't need that. God's provision. When God stirs us to do something, he does not let us down. If God stirs us to give more than it's beyond our means, he will not let you go short. And he will give back to you, not so you can hoard, but so you can give again. That's what he says in his word. We know it to be true. Look at these verses. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. It's the same chapter, by the way. This is why I said about context is always important. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, yes, you will be blessed. Why? So you can abound in good works. Next one, verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Why? For sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Your seed is not increased so that you can hoard, but so that you can give out more. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You're given so you can be generous. God will not stir our hearts and then fail to give us the resources to be able to meet those needs. Wealth is given to us actually in order to be given away. And more wealth will come in. But again, to be given away and to bless. Blessed to be a blessing, that's what they say, isn't it? We receive in order to give. And that's got to be the point of the church. That has to be one of the points and ministries of Redeemer King. That whatever is given, it will be given away. 
It will be used to further the kingdom of God. It will be given to help people, to serve people. Because that's what it's there for. Not to collect money, but to bless people. And that's why at the moment, Calais and the jungle and the people that are there is something that is on my heart. And I don't really know what to do with that yet. Because we live hundreds of miles away. But I say that all the time, you know, compared to Syria, it's awfully close. You know, what can we do practically as a church to help? Can we take lorries down of stuff, sleeping bags, clothes? It might mean being generous on our part. It might mean buying stuff. It might mean giving up our time. I don't know. But I do know this, that when our hearts are stirred, God will not let us down. That when there is a need to be met and we in faith say we're going to meet it, he will be there for us. Even if it means with our giving, if we go, well, these people are more needy than I am. Even if this is at my own expense, I know that God will meet my need. I know that God will be there for me because he always has been and he always will be. We are blessed in order to bless. We are we're shown great generosity in Jesus Christ in order that we're generous. We're loved. Why? So that we can love. It's always the same. All these things work in exactly the same way. And we, through our, what we do with our money, I kind of finish with this. We all want our lives to count, don't we? We all want to, part of us all wants to be remembered in some way, don't we? And we're not going to be remembered for the stuff that we had. Or the nice meal that we had out, which is great. Or the, the experience that we had, or the things that we did. It's like, you know, what counts, I believe, is things that have eternal significance. What counts is seeing lives transformed. What counts is seeing God break in and move in the most amazing ways. And sometimes that requires our generosity in different ways, whether it's money or time. But in order to count, money can't have a hold on our life. Money cannot be the most important thing in your life. God needs to be. And you know what? You can't force that. The only way that's going to happen is God's grace. Pray for it. Pray that God would change your heart. Pray that God would make you appreciate him more. Pray that God would help you give it away. Seems madness, doesn't it? Seems mad for me to be even saying that. What, to give away the stuff that I've worked so hard for? The call to be countercultural isn't just in loving our enemies isn't just in praying for those who persecute us, isn't just in walking the other way, but it's in what we do with our stuff, what we do with our time, what we do with our money too, that we can use it to advance his kingdom in the most meaningful ways and beyond uh, our comprehension as these Macedonians did for the guys in Jerusalem. Why don't we pray together? God, we just pray now that you'd stir our hearts um, by your spirit. That uh, if we have uh, money issues, whether we have too much of it or not enough of it, or it holds our life, we pray, God, that we would yield ourselves to you. We pray that you would cause by your grace a change in our heart this morning that says, the most important thing in my life now is not money, but is God. God, cause us to be generous in the ways that we can be. Cause us to be generous with our time and with our resources and with our energy and with our money. That we might see a difference in this world.
that we might see you um, just change people's lives. And God, we thank you for the example of these Macedonians that were kind of rock bottom. They had nothing, yet they gave everything. And God, help us to get a bit of kind of um, perspective on life and help us, God, to uh, meet the needs of those around us, whether it's in our town, whether it's in our nation, whether it's in Calais or beyond. God, help us as Christians to be the leading light in those that show mercy, in those that show kindness, in those that show love and in generosity. Help us to represent you well by being countercultural, by going the other way, by following after Jesus. And we pray, God, that you would be more valuable to us than anything else, that you would just capture our hearts more than more than the adverts, more than our bank statements, more than the dream of a house. That the real dream, the real thing to aim for is spending life with you. Cause that change in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.